You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash Bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. International development experts love what are called microfinance experiments, lending people small amounts of money to help lift them out of poverty. But these trials don't always work, and one in Sri Lanka seems to be making matters worse. And China's country-scale highways and vast logistics networks have developed in less than a generation. But its 30 million truck drivers aren't the folk heroes that they are in other countries. We take a ride with a trucker there to find out why. First up, though... In northeastern Syria, a fragile peace has turned into a violent rebalancing of power. Turkey's military has been battering the region after President Trump's abrupt decision last week to withdraw key troops from the area. That left the Kurdish fighters who controlled the northeast exposed, fighters who had been strongly allied to American forces and had helped quash Islamic State's ambitions in the region. The Trump administration has been critical of Turkey's rapid incursion, but the president has long wished to extricate America from the quagmire of the Syrian war. We'll see. We have a very good relationship with Turkey. They're a NATO partner. We do a lot of trade with Turkey, but we don't want them killing a lot of people. And, you know, we have been out of there. We beat ISIS. We knocked the hell out of them. Some Islamic State fighters who had been imprisoned by the Kurds are reported to have escaped in the chaos. The advancing Turkish army presents an even greater danger to the Kurds than Syria's Russian-backed forces do. So the Kurds have struck a protection deal with the Syrian government. The change in alliance upends years of American policy in the region. Turkish forces and their Syrian allies have moved into towns in, in northern Syria that were once held by the Kurds. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor and the Turks are bombarding other parts uh, of the north. Now, Turkey has actually moved a lot faster than people thought they would. Uh, They've captured strategic towns along the border and cut off Kurdish supply lines, even cut off the line of retreat for American soldiers. During the fighting, thousands of people have fled. Dozens of Kurdish and rebel fighters have been killed. Some of the Islamic State detainees, once held by the Kurds, have escaped. So Turkey is even saying now that they might expand their their campaign. They might push further into northern Syria. It wants to capture a town called Al-Hasaka. It's a big Kurdish-run city, but it wasn't part of the initial plan for Turkey's invasion. So we'll have to see how that turns out, because at the same time, you have the Kurds cutting a deal with the regime of Bashar al-Assad and his Russian backers. And now you have regime forces moving north uh, to help out the Kurds. And what's the international response been to that, uh, all these quick moves? Uh, The most important response is coming from America. Now, it had initially planned to remove 50 or so troops from northernmost Syria. It has about 1,000 troops in the country as a whole. 
it now says it's going to pull out of the entire northeast, which is where most of its troops have been stationed. And the situation is pretty fluid, but this type of withdrawal could be completed by the end of the month. But you know, everywhere else in Syria, America uh, has been pulling back and, and seems quite willing to cede its positions to others and, and let uh, countries such as Russia uh, sort things out. Further afield, you have Germany, France, the Dutch. They're all saying they're going to block uh, future exports of weapons to Turkey that might help them fight in Syria. NATO has warned Turkey against destabilizing the region, but it's pr- treading pretty lightly. You know, there's been lots of talk, lots of condemnation uh, of Turkey, but not much action. But there had been quite a close alliance between the Kurds and American troops who then, you know, sort of left this vacuum behind them. How have the Kurds responded to that in Syria? I mean, the Kurds have been left with really no option since, since being abandoned by America. So it's, it's turned to the regime of Bashar al-Assad for support. It's a funny thing. The north, northern Syria has changed hands so many times since the civil war began. It's been held by rebels by Islamists, by jihadists, and and finally now the Kurds. But after eight years of fighting, it seems like actually Bashar al-Assad is is about to recapture the North. I mean, certainly that has to be part of the agreement it just made with the Kurds. I'm sure the Kurds are going to give up some of their hard-won autonomy in order to, to gain the support of the Syrian army. So what does that mean then for America in Syria? It's, it's abandoned its allies, the, the Kurds, uh, and, and pulled out altogether. What does that mean in terms of its, its leverage now that the alliance of those former allies has switched? Well, I mean, I think it, it has very little leverage now. I mean, this is, this is quite the turnaround. You, you have America's ally, the Kurds, switching allegiances to America's enemy, the, the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And America's presence in the Northeast, although it was small, it, it did give it some leverage over the final, you know, whatever the final political solution is going to be in Syria's civil war. I mean, this was this is an area of the country that has most of the country's hydrocarbons. It was an area of the country that uh, Bashar al-Assad desperately wanted to regain control of. But America has just washed its hands of it. I mean, over the weekend, you heard Donald Trump somewhat accurately sort of sum up the geopolitics uh, of Syria and then sort of say, we're not going to be involved in in complicated problems like this anymore. And what does that tell you about America's broader engagement in the Middle East? I mean, it it will surely have borne some reputational cost for being quite fickle about uh, about its relationship with the Kurds. Yeah, I think everyone in the Middle East is now sort of questioning their alliances with America. Uh, and that includes, you know, not just the Kurds, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, even Israel. Trump has basically said that this problem in Syria is very complicated. It involves lots of historical and ethnic tensions built up over decades. It's a very volatile situation. That describes just about every problem in the Middle East. So it would be reasonable to assume or to worry if you're Saudi Arabia or Israel, that Trump will abandon American positions elsewhere, uh, you know, in what is inherently a very messy region. Well, one thing that's clear about uh, about the alliance in Syria is that the Kurds did quite a lot to help beat back Islamic State. And in fact, we're in charge of keeping a lot of Islamic State fighters and associated people kind of under, under control. What does that situation look like now in the absence of American help and indeed with a, a shifting alliance of the Kurds? Well, it looks very chaotic. I mean, you have reports of IS detainees escaping. At one camp, family members, hundreds of family members of IS members have fled. You know, since the Turkish invasion, the Kurds have been pulling fighters away from counterterrorism op- operations in order to, to fight the Turks. 
They've also warned that they wouldn't be able to guard um, the facilities where ISD detainees are being held. So I, I think the situation is only going to get worse. And, and even before the invasion, American officials were warning that IS was making a comeback. Since the fighting has started, the group has claimed responsibility for at least two attacks. America had hoped to take control of the most dangerous IS detainees, but now actually the Kurds are, are refusing and they don't want to cooperate with the Americans, I mean, for, for understandable reasons. So it's not even clear how their new alliance with Assad is going to, to affect things, but it certainly can't help. Islamic State still inspires a, a lot of fear, uh, especially in, in the Northeast, and, and I think people are now worried that they're going to see another cycle of jihadist violence. Thank you very much for your time, Roger. My pleasure. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Microfinancing is the practice of lending small amounts of money from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars to poor people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get credit. Microfinance experiments run by governments and charities have reached hundreds of millions of people around the world. They're intended to be a sustainable means of alleviating poverty, in particular in societies where women have little earning power. But they don't always work. The idea of giving poor people small loans without collateral, even if it was at a higher interest rate than on conventional loans, was to basically spur entrepreneurship and allow them to get get out of poverty. But in Sri Lanka, it seems to be burying many, particularly women, deeper in it. Namani Vijadasa writes about Sri Lanka for The Economist. Women were taking them without any education. They didn't know that the effective rates might be as high as 220%. They were only told that the interest rates were about 35%. So it just went on like a vicious cycle. And in the end, they were so indebted that they couldn't get out of it at all. And there's hundreds of them. So how did this this come to be in Sri Lanka? What was, what was the initial embodiment of microfinancing? Microloans have been in Sri Lanka for about 40 years, but they were working very effectively till maybe the 2009 period when the war ended, when the government actively started promoting microfinance as a way of poverty alleviation. So they took the classic international model and they promoted the private sector to go into microfinance, saying that if you give out small loans, even if it's at a higher interest because there's low collateral, people will get their lives back together by borrowing it and using it for self-employment. Everywhere that we see microfinance sold by the private sector, it's turned out to be a massive debt trap for everyone that has gone into it. Why did matters change after it was commercialized? What's different? Well, because the competition grew so high among microlenders, they also saw it as a lucrative business. So they went into the market very aggressively 
And once the first cycle of loan taking and debt started, the microlenders never checked how many loans the women previously had before lending. I know of instances where they walked into, say, churches or community halls in poor villages and set up a desk there and started telling the women to come to these meetings, pocket meetings where they would promote their loans and pretty much hand out the monies in, in about two or three days without checking whether it is possible for the women to pay back. And why, though, did the, the borrowers themselves not avoid this debt trap? Why, why have they allowed themselves to, to get into such trouble? Or is that just a reflection of what happens when you have to service a lot of debt? The microfinance sector in Sri Lanka wasn't preceded by sufficient education. So especially in the north and east where the areas were shut off due to 30 years of war, people just had no idea what it meant to take these loans and how difficult it would be to pay back. There was just sheer ignorance along with microfinance companies Higher purchase companies and leasing companies also swarmed into this market in the north and east because it was an area which had had no consumption for a very long time and there was a desire to buy. Interest rates was just so complex for people to understand. You would have interest rates quoted to you of 35 to 25%, but the effective rates were as high as 220%. And nobody bothered to explain it to these women. And I don't think the women wanted to know either because it was just too complicated. So they only knew what they borrowed, which is the capital, and what weekly installment they had to pay. So there's a massive lack of education. And the micro lenders did not also follow the classic model of microfinance where they have to have some livelihood education programs which show people how you have to pay back the loans. It was just basically lending, lending high interest loans to poor people. And what kinds of effects has that had on Sri Lanka's women? I spoke to a woman today who said she no longer answers her phone. She says that she has been telling everyone that her phone is broken. She has several phone numbers. She's under tremendous pressure. The collectors are all men. They have a job to do as well, which is not entirely their fault. They've been set out to sell the loans and to collect the payments. So they go and they sit outside these women's homes. They go at at 9 o'clock in the night, 10 o'clock in the night, because that's the time they know the women can't avoid them. I met Lasanti Chandimali at a government office in Piliandala. She's a 54-year-old mother of two with a sick husband and he has a debt of a million rupees. She has mortgaged her house now to settle this debt and she's so afraid of being kicked out at the end of the month that she nearly attempted suicide. So it seems clear that the the microfinance experiment in Sri Lanka has had a profound effect on on some of these women. But taking a step back more broadly, what's your take on microfinancing as as a development initiative? I can't cite examples of where it has been done right, but technically speaking, it should work. You are giving poor people small loans on a higher interest because there's no collateral. So they should be able to start something by themselves if the correct structures are in place. Something has gone wrong. I don't know if it's microfinance because that is not what microfinance was supposed to do. But certainly commercial micro lending has not worked And that is what microfinance inevitably turns out to be in many of these countries. So there's something wrong there. And if that is regulation, that will have to be brought in. If it's education, that will have to be strengthened. But I wouldn't write off microfinance um, as a model. It does seem to, at least on paper, work. Namini, thank you very much for joining us. 
You're welcome, Jason. It was a pleasure to speak to you. In some countries, driving trucks is a romanticized occupation. Lonely stretches of open road, freedom and individualism on wheels. Not so in China. The country's truck drivers are almost entirely overlooked. That got our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, wondering. So he hitched a ride. I used to be based in the United States for a long time. And there, you know, if you spend time on the road as a political campaign reporter, you see a lot of truck stops and you realize that truckers have this very iconic status in American culture. People have songs about them on country music radio stations. People make movies about them. And China, you know, when you're traveling around, there are a lot of very large trucks thundering up and down this enormous highway network that they've been building. But they're almost invisible. People don't make movies about truckers. People don't talk much about truckers. And so I just decided to see how big a deal they are economically. And it turns out that they're gigantically important to the modern consumer economy that is transforming China. But they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. Although truckers are sort of loners in in most countries, including in China, they are quite busy on social media. My very brilliant local assistant went on Chinese trucker social media and spent quite a lot of time just saying, hi there, I work for a foreign journalist. Does anyone fancy having a journalist along in the cab for a bit? This giant truck with a huge armoured barrel of sulfuric acid on the back pulled up and it was my new friend, Mr. Liu. What was it like catching a ride with him? So he was interesting. He's in his 40s. So he's been doing this quite a while. He's now at the top end of truck driving. He drives a very big truck and he drives, as I say, this sulfuric acid kind of drum, which makes him a hazardous driver, which he has to have extra training and stuff. He said, though, that actually things have been a lot better even for guys like him. Back in the 1990s, most of them earned pretty good salaries, particularly as they tend not to have a lot of education. And a lot of them owned their own truck. They would borrow money from the bank, from family, friends, and buy a truck. And then they could just go around the back gate of a factory and hand out business cards and get a good lucrative run. That's getting a lot harder now. The good, reliable, repeat jobs go to trucking logistics companies. There's an app a bit like Uber, but for Chinese truckers, which they use because it gets them work, but the rates are brutally low. Interestingly, though, he doesn't listen to music. He doesn't listen to radio. There isn't like country music in China for truckers. One of the reasons is that a lot of long distance truckers, they tend not to drive alone because of those very long hours. Mr. Liu actually often drives with his wife, which is quite common. His wife will kind of help him with parking and navigation and receipts and passing him cold tea and stuff. But the drivers who do these very, very long runs, they'll have two drivers and won't be asleep in the back at any one time. So actually it's considered kind of bad form to listen to music. There's no CB radios. You can't talk to other truck drivers on the road easily because the Chinese government bans CB radios because they're dangerous if you're a police state. So it's a little bit of a lonely life, although it's quite fun. You know, I have to say that after the first several hours in Mr. Liu's cab, it does pull. <laughs> it's quite samey. And those highways, you know, they just roll and roll. And actually things like a traffic jam where you have to stop is a bit of a kind of relief. So what are working conditions like for these truckers? So truckers everywhere, it's a tough job, but it's a really tough job in China. There's 30 million drivers, not all of them drive enormous trucks like Mr. Liu. The rules that American or European listeners will be familiar with, where, you know, you can only drive a very limited amount in a given day for safety reasons, that doesn't really exist in China. And particularly the shocking thing is that every four hours of driving, they have to take a break for 20 minutes. But 
once they've taken that break, they can do another four hours and then another four hours, essentially without any stopping at all. There is no legal limit on how much time a trucker can drive. And one of the people I spoke to in the industry actually said the most dangerous time of day on a Chinese highway is around five in the morning because he said those truckers, you don't know whether they're asleep or awake because they've probably been driving all night and they're like ticking time bombs. Why aren't truckers in China revered as working class heroes in the way that they are in, for instance, America? So I think if you look at those kind of Hollywood movies like Convoy or the country music songs, they're often kind of rebels. There's a lot of kind of outsmarting policemen, smashing through roadblocks, jumping bridges, breaking girls' hearts. And the Chinese Communist Party just isn't very keen on rebels who outsmart policemen, certainly not making them heroes of movies and songs. Partly just a kind of, it's a dictatorship and quite a conservative one. When I asked Mr. Liu why he thought they didn't make movies about guys like him, he kind of snorted and just said, well, it's because we don't have any status. And he said, this is a very Chinese way of describing your status. He said, when I'm loading and unloading at the factory, even the security guard gets to boss me around. That tells you my status because in kind of modern Chinese industrial society, the kind of the lowly security guard is pretty much the bottom of the pile. Thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.